Bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, September 12th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Muriel Siebert, the first woman to have a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. But before we get into Muriel's life, I want to talk for just a second about why money is so important for women. As women, we know that if we do not control our money, we do not control our own lives. Women have been disenfranchised since the dawn of time in countless ways, but one of the largest and most impactful is through financial isolation. Keeping women at home, limiting their scope to domestic duties, preventing them from joining equal opportunity workplaces, denying them access to free enterprise and higher education, all of these Systematic restrictions serve to keep women financially dependent on men. We like to think about these sexist policies as being something of a bygone era, right? Like, oh, that was back in the 1800s. But there were actually policies at some stores during as recently as the mid-20th century that forbade married women from working there. So how did we get to a place where being married means you don't get to have a job? So glad you asked. During the Great Depression, jobs were obviously very scarce. The economy was on fire in a dumpster out back, and one of the main culprits was married women? Yeah, if you ask Frances Perkins, New York's Commissioner of Labor and later FDR's Secretary of Labor, a lot of the blame for average Joe's economic woes rested on the shoulders of working women. According to Perkins, quote, the woman pin money worker who competes with the necessity worker is a menace to society, a selfish, short-sighted creature who ought to be ashamed of herself. Thanks, Frances. Pin money, by the way, is a 17th century idiom referring to the allowance a woman was given by her husband for decorative items such as hat pins. So essentially, the general thinking in the U.S., even during the 20th century, was that unless you are an impoverished single woman, you had absolutely no right to be working and making your own money. And doing so was not only selfish, but a direct blow to America's already crumbling infrastructure and morale. Laws that banned married women from working were fairly prevalent before the Depression. Nine states had them in place. But by the time the Depression started to ease up in the early 40s, thank you, World War II, 26 states had some sort of restrictions in place when it came to married women working. These laws had actually been around on the books in the U.S. from the late 1800s when lawmakers felt that a working woman would be more likely to abandon her family if she had the financial freedom to do so. This systemic encouragement of financial dependence on men was not only prevalent in real life, but it was also a frequent plot point in movies. In 1941, there was an Alfred Hitchcock comedy. I think it might have been his only comedy that he did. Maybe there was others, but I think it's one of the few he did. So he makes this comedy. It's called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. This is obviously the first Mr. and Mrs. Smith. There's no Angelina Jolie in this one. Um, this Mr. and Mrs. Smith stars Carol Lombard and Robert Montgomery, and they play a married couple who find themselves not married due to a clerical error. So thinking herself single, Carol Lombard's character goes to work in a department store to support herself. Not only does her husband come back to demand that she return home, but when he tells her manager that she is actually married, the manager reprimands her saying, it's not our policy to employ married women. And then he fires her on the spot. As someone who taught classic film for years, I always love to connect historic themes and topics with old movies if I can. 
So at the end of this episode, I'm going to give you the names of some old Hollywood movies that deal with the relationship between women and money as it was viewed by American society in the 30s through the 50s, should you care to sneak a peek at those. So the historic relationship between women and money is an entire podcast series on its own, but I wanted to frame the importance of what Muriel did in an appropriate social context to understand what a large step this was for women and their financial health and independence. So Muriel was born on September 12th um, in Cleveland, Ohio. She was the youngest uh, born to a Jewish family led by Irwin and Margaret Siebert. The year of her birth has been listed as both 1928 and 1932 by various online sources. Her interest in finance started young by the time she was enrolling at Case Western Reserve University, that's a private college in Cleveland, in 1949, she had already chosen an accounting major. A year before she completes her degree, her father finds out that he has cancer, and since he was the sole income source for the family, Muriel has to drop out of college. The path of getting married and becoming a housewife was wide open before her, but she took the road not only less traveled, but not even built yet. So she takes the 500 bucks that she has saved up and she drives from Cleveland to New York City, where she begins to pound the pavement in search of a job. Being a woman with no resume, no degree, very little money, that would have been daunting for most, but Muriel was already a monument to resilience. So she manages to snag an interview with Merrill Lynch, but they turn her away when they find out that she doesn't have a college degree. Realizing that this incomplete degree was blocking her from getting an opportunity to show what she could really do, Muriel fibbed a little bit at her interview with Bosch & Co., which is a New York brokerage firm, and she told them that her degree was complete and she was offered an entry-level position in research analysis. Muriel intended to make up the missing credits at some point, but she ended up becoming way too busy and eventually successful to make time. As the most junior employee who also happened to be a woman, the least desirable accounts were dumped on her desk. But she used these as opportunities to showcase her skills and her reputation began to climb very swiftly in the company. But however fast her star was rising, she simply couldn't compete with her male colleagues. The good old boys club was alive and well and the most juicy lucrative deals were being made behind doors at investment clubs that were open to men only. So realizing that this systemic sexism was preventing her from getting into the doors she needed to get into, she changed her cards and her letterhead from Muriel Siebert to M. Siebert. And once she got in front of someone, her personality and intelligence and drive did the rest of the work. So she works for a few more Manhattan area firms in the 1960s until 1967 when she founds her own firm, Muriel Siebert & Co. Incorporated. She applies for a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, but of the 10 men she asked to sponsor her application, nine declined. Sidebar about buying a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. In 2006, the New York Stock Exchange became public, but prior to that, it was private so that in order to trade on the floor, you'd have to buy a seat. You could either be someone else's agent, which would make you a floor broker, or you'd be representing your own account, which would make you a floor trader. The members only slash private status of the NYSE started on May 17, 1792, when 24 white men got together under a buttonwood tree, also known as a sycamore, and formed something called the Buttonwood Agreement. And this laid the groundwork for what the stock exchange would look like and the rules surrounding its operation. Over the next 100 years, the amount of seats would grow to 1100 with the cost of a seat being around 4000 which is about $100,000 today. By the 1920s, the cost of a seat was over $600,000. 
But after the market crash in 1929, the price plummeted to just under $70,000. By the time the depression was finally starting to ease up in 1942, you could buy a seat for only $17,000. If you owned a seat, you could also lease it out to someone else who was qualified, but not a formal member of the exchange. In 2006, when the private NYSE membership disbanded after being bought out by Intercontinental Exchange for $10 billion, the 1,366 seat owners that remained were each given 80,000 shares in the new company, 400 grand in cash and dividends, and a very nice setup for the rest of their life, obviously. So if someone wants to trade now on the exchange, you need a one-year license that you can buy, but most brokers just trade from home these days. Back to Muriel. So she wants to buy a seat for the going cost of $445,000, but she couldn't. So she had to look for a man to sponsor her membership. The stock exchange was so jicky about a woman joining its rarefied air that they actually came up with a new membership condition requiring that she submit a letter from a bank offering to loan her $300,000 of the seat's price tag. When Muriel tried this, the bank said they would not give her a letter until she had a seat. So she was stymied from both ends. She kept fighting, though, and she finally got bank, uh, backing from Chase Manhattan Bank, and she won her seat in December of 1967. There would not be another woman beside her on the exchange for another decade. By 1977, she was the superintendent of all banks in New York, responsible for over $500 billion. During her time in that position, not a single bank in New York failed, even though banks all over the country were collapsing. She returned to her private firm in the early 80s and made an unsuccessful bid for Senate in 1982. In the mid-90s, her firm merged with J. Michael & Sons, a furniture company in the process of liquidation, which turned her firm into a publicly traded company. Muriel was a vocal proponent of bringing more women and people of color to the table. She said men at the top of the industry and government should be more willing to risk sharing leadership with women and minority members who are not merely clones of their white male buddies. In these fast changing times, we need the different viewpoints and experiences. We need the enlarged talent bank. The real risk lies in continuing to do things the way they've always been done. She created the Seabird Entrepreneurial Philanthropic Plan in 1990, which takes half of her firm's net profits from new securities and shares it with the charity of the issuer's choice. Millions have been donated to various philanthropic organizations since its inception. While serving as the president of the New York Women's Agenda in 1998, she started a program called Financial Literacy for Women, which is still helping women become financially savvy and independent to this day. Muriel has also served on the board of many organizations dedicated to helping women in business, and she personally financially aided women-owned businesses that were destroyed during the 1992 LA riots. In her lifetime, she received numerous honors, including an induction into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1994, as well as 17 honorary doctorate degrees. In 2016, Siebert Hall was created at the New York Stock Exchange, the first time a room there was named after a person. Muriel passed away on August 24, 2013, at 86 years old, after a bout with cancer. She never married or had kids. Muriel Siebert and Co. Incorporated has to date been open and a member of the exchange since 1967, longer than any other discount brokerage firm. So earlier in this episode, I talked about the fact that I was going to mention a few movies at the end of the episode here. 
uh, having to do with films in the 1930s through the 50s that discuss the relationship between women and money. So here's three of them that I personally am a really big fan of. Number one is Babyface. It's a pre-code 1933 drama starring Barbara Stanwyck. She plays this woman named Lily who's born into absolute poverty and abuse. Mom runs off. Dad is this gross speakeasy owner who is abusive and he pimps her out to his uh, patrons even when she's like 13 years old. It's really, you know, really, really sad. And her dad ends up dying in a tragic accident, although he's such a scumbag, it's not really tragic. And Lily realizes that because she's beautiful, she has to use that to get herself to a life of financial comfort. So she ends up sleeping her way up the corporate ladder. Doesn't matter who has to die. Doesn't matter who has to have their life ruined. She needs to get to a position of financial comfort. And she knows that she only has her beauty and her body to do so with. It was very risque stuff for back then. But then again, it is pre-code. So anything kind of went. Um, Really strong message about this concept that if you were poor... You'd better be beautiful because that was the only thing that you had to leverage to get upward mobility. Second movie, 1945 drama, Mildred Pierce, starring Joan Crawford. She actually won the Best Actress Oscar for this one. So in it, she plays a woman who is married to a guy that kind of struggles to support the family. They're not really well off. She's got two daughters, one of whom is an out-and-out gold digger. Dad has an affair and leaves the family, and she's forced to turn to the one thing she knows, which is how to bake really good pies. And she ends up turning that into a successful restaurant business. So she's making her own money. But while she's doing this, she's dealing with everything from creepy guys and her gold digging daughter telling her that even though you're making all this money for me, I'm embarrassed of you because you're having to do it by wearing an apron and waiting on people. And why couldn't you have just married money? Why couldn't you have just been born rich? All, all this kind of, you know, feedback that wasn't uncommon for women to hear back then when they were trying to make their own money. And the third movie is How to Marry a Millionaire. It is a 1953 comedy with Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, and Betty Grable. Delightful bit of cinematic bubblegum. Very simple premise. You've got three gorgeous gold-digging models who all want to marry a millionaire. So they realize that in order to do so, they have to look rich themselves. So they buy into this luxury apartment so they can act like they are wealthy in order to hopefully attract wealthy suitors. Very similar message to Babyface in the sense that there is this idea that if you are not born of money, you would better be beautiful because that is your only chance at marrying money. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Muriel Siebert. Please join me tomorrow, September 13th, when we celebrate the birth and life of Alan Leroy Locke, the philosophical architect of the Harlem Renaissance and the world's first African-American Rhodes Scholar. See you then.